The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, get your texty on and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 506, recorded live from Ordev in Malmo, Sweden, Wednesday, November 4th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Great City Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web Applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man whose Uncle Louie got fired from the orange juice factory... For lack of concentration, Carl Franklin. 39 speakers in my living room. That's a Thank you very much, and welcome back to another episode of .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin introducing the interviews that we did at OrDev November 4th and 5th, 2009, in Malmo, Sweden. Well, Richard, here we are again at Ordev. Yes, sir. Next, what day is it? Thursday? It's yeah. Thursday. Malmo, Sweden, and we're here with Rebecca Werfsbrock. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. How's the show been for you so far? Uh, it's great. It's like a real technical buzz, you know? It's like overload. And what have you been buzzing about? Uh, well, um, I just got done with a session on lessons learned from reviewing architectures. So... Um, Reviewing architectures of projects or architectures with a capital A? Uh, systems, design, major design decisions of complex systems, yeah. Okay. And how to do that and lessons I've learned doing that over the years. So that's what I buzzed about just wow. right before. That's a big topic for an hour and 15 minutes. 50 minutes. 50 minutes. 50 yeah, minutes. we got short sessions here. It was here. the highlights, yeah. Yeah, yeah you got to yeah. really motor. So how many, how many architectures do you think you've looked at over the years? Well, in the last 10 years, uh, probably I've looked at, you know, professionally, like getting paid for a, a couple of them a year. Uh, you know, they can be enterprise application suites or product lines or products. Uh, so it kind of varies or 
embedded systems. Sure. Um, so yeah, I kind of get to get to see a lot of stuff. How wide uh, or granular does an architecture get? I mean, you know, when I look at systems, I see an overall architecture, and then inside the system, I see lots of mini architectures. Sure. How, where do you, where what do you call the architecture? The uh, whole thing. Oh. I think it's uh, all of those. And when you're reviewing it, it's kind of looking at the um, major design decisions that make or break systems. And if it's big systems, you may take a, quite a while looking at various different parts of it. So, yeah. so, there's, so there could be theoretically n number of architectures because everything is some sure. well, everything is a little different. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So do you believe in the one right way? Like, is there a correct architecture we should all be using? Or is it a little no. more complicated than that? Oh, no. It's a lot more complicated than that. In fact, one of the myths that I think that all the, you know, overzealous framework developers would like you to believe is that just use my set of frameworks and uh, that defines the architecture that, for you. That yes. will make it easy, right? Yes. I mean, the reality's got to be that people are building applications successfully in all these different platforms and... The platform doesn't save you, protect you from anything. That said, you probably recognize bad architecture when you see it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I just got done talking to people about is how do I give advice um, when, you know, if you're looking at something that's pretty large, how do you do it in a way that kind of hits the, you know, the highlights right. without overloading information? And, mm -hmm. and so uh, besides having key findings... I tend to use a, a triage mentality. Have you ever heard of a triage kit? Diagnosing. Yeah. Well, if you have a triage problems. kit, you know, when you're in a medical uh, disaster, uh, they quickly assess whether you're dead, and then they tie a black ribbon around you. And if you just have a superficial wound, you get a green ribbon. And it's really, you know, if it's a fatal flaw in the architecture, well, you can point it out. But it's usually that middle ground where you need to spend right. your time, you know, where it's orange or red. And a know. triage is a prioritization, isn't yeah, it? Absolutely. Who goes first? Right. The so dead ones, they're dead. You can't fix them. Yeah. Just point it out and move on. Yeah, so. And the point is, if the architecture simply didn't work, everybody would know. They would. The usually, app would So work. you rarely <laughs> find that. Yeah. What you do Flat find lines. is you need to focus on that middle band of stuff, yeah, and, and sort and that out. So you know, how much gradation do you see there? What's really, what would you consider really, really bad versus not quite as bad? Well, it depends on what you're trying to achieve, but usually performance is a killer. Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's... That's an indication uh, something's got to change. That's, that's a, also, I guess I'd say, uh, footprint. Uh, and, and you, uh, I, I spent a lot of time, although I know you're the .NET guys, you know, looking at Java applications, sure. and when you have a big footprint, it doesn't scale, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. you know. Yeah, you're, you're already as big as you're going to be able to get. Scaling is just impossible at that point. That's right. So, I mean, looking at. There's a joke about Yeti in there somewhere, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll just move on. And, and, and so, you know, those, those kind of uh, qualities are. But then also complexity or unnecessary complexity can yeah. really choke an architecture, too. Uh, and I got to think that most of the, by the time someone calls you, they're obviously in trouble, right? There's some kind of pain they know about before they get a review. Yeah, uh, that's true. And so, um, wouldn't it be nice if I saw stuff that was perfectly brilliantly good? But yeah, that's rarely the case. Now, what so, it's like shooting ducks in a barrel sometimes. Right. Uh, 
Uh, or if you're Dick Cheney shooting lawyers in a duck blind. Yes, right. There you like go. <laughs> um, what, ha what about when the architecture seems sound, but they're just using the wrong tool for one particular piece of it? Does that fall under implementation or architecture? Well, if you're using the wrong tool, um, it may not be a fatal flaw, but it's something, you know, when I, you know, again, using that triage mentality, usually I make recommendations, which I feel really strongly about because right. I know enough, and then observations that maybe I, I poked around, spent time talking with people, looked at the code, looked at performance numbers, um, saw things like, gee, it was the wrong tool for the job, right. but I'm not necessarily 100% sure because maybe yeah. they didn't quite tell me everything. Right. Um, so, you know, maybe it's an observation that could be uh, you know, they know more context so they can... Uh, yeah, but so certainly it's worth pointing it out if it's... And a, it's worth swapping out an implementation for another one to find out if that's the... If that's the problem. If that's the yeah. bottleneck. Yeah. What, what, do you find uh, um, more bottlenecks around databases or around code? Yes. Yes? <laughs> it depends on... Really, it depends on what's, Just what's happening. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of uh, people in uh, trying to use object technology, um, there still is that, and they want to have a domain model, mm. you know, where they have objects with rich behavior. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes there's this, there is that impedance mismatch between uh, fetching and retrieving data that can really cause performance, mm. particularly if you're indirectly going through some framework rather than right. just pedal to the metal queries. And, oh, the frameworks that are out there for us to choose from. Oh, well, we yes, we, we, we do like uh, our frameworks. We do yeah. like our frameworks. <laughs> yeah. Lots of them. I would argue that most of the challenge we have in modern development today is the translation between the object layer and the database layer. It's that reconstitution process, deconstitution process that where most folks struggle. It, well, also in actually uh, really thinking about concurrency and their transactional model. Sometimes they're really inadequate for what they, they just don't think about those kind of concurrent, right. concurrent issues. And we haven't even talked about communications. No, it's another thing again. I once ran into a customer in a consulting role who was a firm believer that a transaction was something you started at 9 a.m. and finished mm -hmm. at 5. <laughs> yeah, didn't and, mm. and oddly enough, that app worked great with one user. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. That's funny. Well, <laughs> you know, the unit test didn't catch that problem, did it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, actually, that day. that kind of uh, transactional requirements is something I'd say that even you know pretty sophisticated developers don't always appreciate the implications of that. You know, they're locking mechanisms and, and responsiveness and even what they've got to do with mm -hmm. generating, you know, or dealing with it um, and recovery actions. They just don't think of all those things. Yeah, setting up a really good transactional boundary. The transaction begins here and it finishes there and we know what to do if it doesn't work out. Right, exactly. I mean, and, and, and you know, it's like... Well, the framework can, I can say set transactional here, but that's really, there's a lot more to that. Do I need to have, you know, optimistic uh, or, or pessimistic? Yes. What are my boundaries of the set of related data that I'm going to guarantee to be, have integrity over time? You know, is it just this chunk of data or is there more that I need to keep in sync? You know, those are all, they're 
They're Some very, really architectural flaws that you can come up with, yeah. They're very core topics to an application that I, I have to agree with you. Many times people just have not thought about their app that way. Yeah. It sounds to me like you're a real enemy of complexity. Am I right? Oh, well... Or complexity is the enemy, let's say that. Well, sometimes concurrent systems are complex. I mean, ac actually one of the things that, uh, you know, the, the glimmer of hope that you, you, know, you hear at this conference is that you know, the new programming language models are going to help us with, you know, writing concurrent programs and yeah. deal with the core. Yeah. Some of them have ignored that, that whole data concurrency uh, and transactional concurrency issue. You yeah. know, it, it isn't just the programming language. It's are the there system. any technologies or areas of technology where you feel we're foolishly uh, going after that just won't work? Naively going after? Yeah, maybe. Um... No, I actually, I know, you know, I, even though we've talked about the downsides, I actually think a lot of people, uh, you know, are there's a lot of bright people out there, too, yeah. figuring it out. So I, I, I don't really have anything that I particularly say, anything don't ever do that. Anything too complex, maybe? Uh, something too complex. Something I think that could that be greatly simplified? The complexity usually that I see um, is in the fact that I'm dealing with a lot of different seams and boundaries between technologies. So, for mm. example, I'm translating to this, I'm marshalling this, yeah. I'm, uh, you know, transforming, and, uh, and and there's just a lot of churn, if you will. Yeah. It would be really nice if, if you didn't have to do all of that. And, yeah. you know, Two technologies that were never meant to exist in the same sentence. Two, maybe. three, four, five, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, SOA can be, you know, SLOA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but any, anyway, and you know, and, sure. and those kinds of, uh, you know, when you're building complex enterprise applications, you do have to connect to legacy stuff with old technologies, yeah. and but it just makes it... Uh, inherently you know, complex. Inherently complex. Right. Um, but I, I think that a, another thing that kind of adds to uh, complexity unnecessarily is uh, people have in the uh, spirit of trying to make things more flexible or configurable have separated out like the wiring of dependencies yeah. using an XML specification yeah. that then is interpreted and done behind the back with a container and that it, extra complexity makes it hard. As the, the, I guess the thinking is it's easier to change XML than recompile. And but XML is, is, is not, doesn't have any semantics and it's yeah. full of bugs. It's hard right. to test XML. Very hard isn't to it? test yeah. XML, yeah. yeah. So all those different kind of ways of doing things may be more complexity than you really need. Hmm. Interesting, Bob. Yeah, and the idea that... Uh, you're reprocessing that data over and over and over again. It, it, you know, it's effectively, you, you mentioned, I'm trying to avoid compiling, and yet every time I run the app, effectively I'm recompiling that XML to figure out those mappings of those connections oh, within all, the app. Oh, all over the place. All over the yeah, place. Yeah. Yeah. It is still a form of compilation. It's just extra yeah. slow. And then try to find <laughs> the bug when the error is in the code. Right, and it's that, obscurely and it's done obscurely in some framework. that in some framework or yeah. some XML file right. hidden in some directory somewhere. On some path that you yeah, don't know. That you don't have access to, probably. Right. <laughs> are you actually and the password seeing... just went to lunch. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> so are you actually seeing out in the field now this, this growth in concurrency-based apps, the architectures that are far more savvy to multi-core? 
Um, actually, that's actually um, not really. Not pretty, yet. Pretty, pretty much what I've been dealing with has been pretty much uh, traditional enterprise applications, transactional-based, but not necessarily you yeah. know, highly concurrent, multi-threaded. I guess I don't get to do the cool stuff. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, CRUD is still king. Most people are just trying to put data in a database and get it back. Um, and pass it around and transform it. Isn't that a song by Chardet? Nice. Your yeah. crud is king. No? <laughs> no? So what about, how, have you looked at software transactional memory? Um, yeah, actually, uh, Gemstone is, uh, you know, the company Gemstone does their uh, cash. Um, they uh, are in Portland. I, that's where I come from. I have a number of friends mm. that uh, work Maine at that company. Oregon? Portland, Oregon. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I'm aware of that. I don't have any clients that I've worked with that have done it, but I know know about it. It's pretty cool stuff. Turns out that um, you know people are using that for pretty interesting applications. I guess they're not having problems, or they'd be calling in someone yeah. like me. But you know, there, for example, even online games and gambling uses mm. uses STM. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's. I, I Why can not? See that. Why yeah. not? Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, anyway, isn't that one of the rules that pornography and gambling always adopt technologies first? All right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Basically, built the internet with that. Yeah. Yeah. That brought the conversation to screeching halt. Yes, okay. that's right. <laughs> you guys would be great. Thanks very much, uh, Rebecca. We're down to about sort of last five minutes. Sure. Any uh, advice for folks who are, are, you know, concerned about their architecture? Where yeah, do they call start? Her. Call her. Call her. Yes. you. Um, actually, I think that um, uh, I think that um, architecture is is an evolution that needs to be proven. All right. So mm. I may start out with ideas. I have to prove it with not unit tests, but with real live end-to-end kind of uh, yeah. performance and constraints mm. checking and mm-hmm. testing. And so. I'm a big fan of identifying the areas of risk and doing that kind of uh, performance and load testing mm. on architectures. You know, it's it's just something oftentimes people kind of assume that that's going to work okay, and and that really can bring real yeah. enterprise applications to their knees. Sit down, install it, run it, use it in the environment in the that environment it will be in. Right. Yeah. 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 But often we have to do so much development before we can actually test that architecture adequately. If you, if, and I, I bet you don't get many opportunities there. But given someone brought you in at the beginning of a project where the architecture wasn't already decided, yeah. No, I, yeah, I don't. Uh, you, you never you get that. That's, well, <laughs> actually, I have a couple of times. Okay. But um, and and then that's then we do it right. But um, but you still <laughs> even in that case, for example, I was working. Uh, developing an application that integrated a bunch of different back office telco systems before we like rolled it out into production we had a working prototype right. that we evaluated and, and, and yeah and i think that's the big challenge here is actually saying i want to build three prototypes using different architectures all trying to achieve the same goal to see well which one's going to measure up long term to the the the, uh, the goals we really need the and, and ability to scale take a look and so at on. it i yeah. mean if you're building something that's that critical to a, an enterprise it it you know back of the pencil back of the you know envelope architectures don't really cut it so yeah. mm, i get that oftentimes vendors try to sell you 
you know. Oh, yes, we'll, we'll cover it. It comes with an architecture. Yeah. <laughs> it's in this envelope here. Rebecca, yes. do you have a blog or another website we should uh, find your writings? Um, or yeah, like? I have a blog, um, and my website is www.wurfsbrock.com. Spell that. Wurfs-brock.com, W-I-R-F-S dash, the yeah. character. <laughs> B-R-O-C-K.com. And then from there, you can find my blog. Great. Yeah. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. All right. Hey. Thank you, guys. And, Richard, we're back with Neil Ford from ThoughtWorks. Hi, Neil. Hello. Another thought worker. Yeah. You guys are everywhere. We are. You're infesting the world. We are. Guys. Slowly. We, but we surely. Slowly, yeah, surely. We talked to Dan Forth yesterday. Or Dan North, North yesterday. Yep. Dan Forth. I think it was something else. Uh, Dan Forth North. <laughs> yes. There you go. Yeah, we're uh, like 1,300, 1,400 people worldwide now. So we're, it's only wow. fair that a couple would end up in Sweden. Yeah, exactly. Kind of inevitable. Yeah. So what do you do for ThoughtWorks? Um, so there's my title, and then there's what I do. Ah, I like that. <laughs> um. And my title has a kind of an explanation with it because my title on my business cards is software architect and meme wrangler. And meme writer. Meme R- wrangler. Writer. Wrangler. Wrangler. Okay. Meme wrangler. Wrangle so the memes. My first set of business cards. So the, the deal at ThoughtWorks is you can pick any title you want, but you only get one set of business cards. So you have to live with whatever you've got. Okay. So I've actually met a person who had seat warmer on their yeah. business card. Nice. Which, That's a shame. Yeah, it's, you get one set, but you can pick any title okay. you want. So my first set of business cards said application architect on it. But that's before I realized that in a lot of places, especially in the U.S., that means that you are post-useful. Post-useful. It means you spend all of your time in Visio and no time writing code, right. and that's bad. Yeah, ivory tower. So my second set of business cards was just meme wrangler, which is you know a nice, abstract, made-up title. Yeah. Um, and then you realize you could use a conjunction. Well, have uh, both of them. Well, the problem with that was you would hand that business card to people on sales calls and that kind of stuff, and you get one of two responses, either, ooh, that's cool, or what the hell does this mean? Yeah. So yeah, what's that? I compromised on my third set and did the, the joint thing of post-useful and meme wrangler. I thought you only got one that you but had to But if you with. use them all up, then you can order new ones oh, and change your title. Yeah, of course. So, so I'm on my third set of cards now, and, and I've oh, kind of yeah. settled on the... So what exactly do you do for ThoughtWorks? So that, that's the title. What I do is um, uh, basically tech lead kind of stuff because yeah. there's not really an architect title within ThoughtWorks, mm-hmm. although it's kind of interesting because when I got hired, my offer letter actually said, we're hiring you as architect. Right. Okay, that's fine because mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was a, a lateral hire. I'd been CTO of a training consulting company for 12 years before that. So, okay, fine, no problem. And when I bumped into the first, you know, random thought worker in the hall, they said, "Oh yeah, how, you know, how, what did you get hired for?" And I said, "Oh, an architect." And they laughed. <laughs> Why are you laughing? It's like there is no title of architect here because it does mean post useful in so many places. Right. And all of our architects are extremely hands on. I mean, they yeah. are the tech leads of projects. Right. They try to spend as little time as possible in Visio and as much time as possible in the code because. And everybody here knows this. As soon as you stop touching code, you instantly start atrophying. Your yeah. skills, yeah. right? And if you don't keep up with that stuff constantly, right. you'll get left behind yep. in a big, big hurry. Yeah, sure. So, what are some of the more more interesting things that you're working on these days? Um, uh, there's a bunch of different stuff. The, one of the nice things about being a consultant, especially if you have kind of terminal ADD, is you get to work on lots of stuff, right? Yeah. And you get to bounce around different places. Uh, so, for um, 
for one client, I'm doing this kind of gradual, you know, a few days at a time kind of consulting, helping them set up an architectural center of excellence, do agile architecture, because obviously we're in the, the agile space. Uh, we're well known in that space. Um, so I'm helping them do that. Uh, you know, I'm doing a little bit of work on, uh, we have an iPhone app that's a conference app mm-hmm. that we are, we wrote it for Agile, the Agile conference in Chicago, but we wrote it in such a way that basically all the data is on Google App Engine, so you just swap out the data. What exactly do you mean by conference app? Well, it, it's actually an application that you launch it, and like if, if this conference were using it, you'd see the entire schedule there. You could schedule your own sessions and all that stuff. You can do evaluations. It has a map of the venue and all that stuff. So, so just sort of a nice little toolbox for conference attendees. Yeah, exactly. Nice. And so we built it in such a way that it's relatively easy to switch out the back end, just the data, mm. and the front end basically doesn't change at all. Mm. It just all that's emitted from Google App Engine to the iPhone app. Nice. So uh, a little bit of, you know, playing around with that here and there. Uh, I've been working on, well, you know, we started a, an open source uh, testing framework here last night. I did a yeah. talk on it this morning. Nice. <laughs> For a Clojure. So I've been playing around with Clojure some. Uh, this time of year for me is actually mostly conferences because yeah. I do a lot of conference stuff and it's really hectic in the spring and the fall because that's when all the conferences in Europe yeah, happen because yeah. everybody's on vacation Everywhere. in the summer. Yeah. So it's really heavy in the spring and the fall in Europe. And then it's, it's heavier in the U.S. as well. So mm-hmm. this time of year I'm basically just flying from city to city talking about stuff. But then December, January, February kind of time, time frame, all the conferences go away and so I'll tend to be heads down on a project somewhere. So what theme are you currently wrangling? Well, whatever's out there to be wrangled. Uh, Clojure is my favorite thing right now, new yeah. thing. That's what the, the testing framework we're writing is this behavior-driven development framework for Clojure called Circumspect. Mm-hmm. So, but Clojure is a language. Yep. It's a JVC language, right? Well, JVM and CLR. JVM, yeah. It runs on the CLR, CLR, too. Absolutely. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yep. In fact, uh, Rich Hickey, the guy who created it, is primarily a C-sharp developer by day and huh. a Clojure hacker by night. And he did it for the JVM first, but it runs on the CLR now as well. So it's a cross. So what does it look like? I mean, it's a Lisp. Oh, it's a functional language. Well, it's a functional language, and it's a Lisp. It's a Lisp dialect. So okay. all the parens and all that stuff. But it, it is a functional dialect of Lisp, and it has some really brilliant ideas about concurrency in it. In fact, Rich has done the most interesting thinking about concurrency of anybody from any language that I've seen so far. Rich Hickey, the guy who created Clojure, right? Because he has identified. Uh, so most of the time, in object-oriented languages, you, you kind of act like time doesn't exist. Because you create this stateful object, and it basically just has that state every time you go visit it. Nothing is going to change it. Yeah. You, you kind of ignore time as a dimension. It's just there, and it's going to be that way until I make some change to it. Mm-hmm. Right. But the world doesn't work like that. Software doesn't work like that. There's dozens of things happening all the time, everywhere. And what Rich has done is really well-defined. He's basically added time as a dimension to state. And he has identified uh, four possible things that you might want to do with data in terms of sharing it or mutating it. And he has specific mechanisms in Clojure to handle those four cases, including software transactional memory. Hmm. That's the, the shared reference case, which is the hmm. toughest case. Yeah. He has software transactional memory working in Clojure so that every single change you make to a collection is done in a transaction in memory. Now, is that a switch or is that just by default? By default. In fact, you can't mutate state without it being in a transaction enclosure. But the, you know, so that, that, does that work in all cases? Absolutely. I mean, STM is something that you really only see a value when you have so many cores. 
working. Well, and, uh, but look at our life. <laughs> I mean, you can't buy a machine with a single core in it anymore. Yeah. I think uh, eight is the minimum. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a question it. of what well, the overhead is to that. Well, that's exactly it. Moore's law, you know, has changed from add more transistors to add more cores. Right. Yeah. There's a great graphic that just came out recently by Herb Sutter called the, the free lunch is over. And it's basically four graphs. It's a logarithmic scale. So you see a nice, you know, what would normally be a curve is a nice straight line. Yeah. And it is a uh, number of transistors, uh, wattage or a clock speed and then wattage and then clock speed per wattage. And number of transistors is almost a straight logarithmic line. So yeah. it's been going up exponentially. Right. But the going. others are flattening out. Yeah. They all came because off. Because once yeah. you hit a certain point in, wattage, then heat dissipation becomes a really big deal, yeah, it's, it's and you can't really pump up the clock speed any because of the heat dissipation problems. Yeah, yeah it was around preaching the choir 200 watts, right? Yeah. The yeah. P4 got to about 200, and then you were then and then the demos, uh, you know, all the YouTubes were showing us cooking food on our processors. Yeah, exactly. I think I did cook a, something <laughs> and, on well, my And that's a big problem, because we have been relying for the past 20 or 25, 30 years on uh, the automatic performance upgrade. Right. The easiest way, yeah, if, you're, if your user says, I want this app to be twice as fast, you tell them, okay, I'll give you that in a year. And you just do nothing for a year, and new hardware comes out, and you hand them the app, and it's like, okay, it's twice as fast now. Well, I, you're, I'm, I'm sold on STM. You know, you're preaching the choir there. But, it's, uh, it's a beautiful However, um, I was under the impression that uh, you know, you're not going to see a performance gain until you have eight cores. And the last time I checked, you know, machines don't have eight cores. Well, Most of sure them. Sure, they do. Most of them. Every well, new I mean, machine are, you buy. Are we going it, it to even... take that to run? Uh, well, I mean, the to you don't have language? to because it doesn't have to spread it out across cores. It can do it in threads. In fact, does it in threads in memory right now? Oh, sure. It's, it's more of a uh, of a thing that you absolutely need right this minute as a an improved way of thinking about time yeah. and state in languages, which most object-oriented languages don't do that at all. I guess what I'm saying is closure going to require an, a big honking core machine? No, not at all. It's super fast. In fact, it's a really thin layer over the top of either uh, uh, the CLR or JVM. Hmm. So it's really highly performant. It is. Yep. And he's done a really... And STM is built in every object. Well, every operation. It's not an object-oriented language. It's a Lisp. So yeah, it's yeah. Every operation. So every, uh, every, yeah. every operation that mutates shared state Yes. Which is, you want as little of that stuff as possible. Sure. Ideally in a functional language. Sure. But if you have to do that, then he has semantics that guarantee that that works correctly. And you don't have to, no, there is no synchronization lock whatsoever yeah. in the right. language. Because it's sure. not needed. Yeah. There's no synchronization semantics at That's all. Beautiful. It's all underneath. Beautiful part of functional lang languages and beautiful part of uh, SDM as well. Yep. So how does Clojure take advantage of multiple cores then? Is there well, anything particular you're doing? For right now, it's just whatever the JVM does, because right. that's all at the JVM and CLR level. Yeah. Uh, what Clojure has the opportunity of doing is allowing the JVM and the CLR to make much better advantage of those, because you don't have, you don't get deadlocks. I mean, it's impossible to get a deadlock in Clojure, because there's mm -hmm. no, there's no way to create one. There's no way to create a race condition in Clojure, because that's right. all just handled for you by the language. Mm -hmm. So it's really, uh, making it possible for the underlying virtual machines to super optimize the code that it produces rather than a direct, you know, one-to-one -one mapping between I write this and it does but, this better. And what I like about this is, I mean, in the end, you're still waiting for the CLR to take advantage of that. Right, exactly. It's just a question of whether it can recognize. I mean, in the end, it's all IL. Yep. Is it going to be able to recognize that this is safe to do this? Right, exactly. Well, the media thought is uh, .NET 4 has STM built into it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure Clojure will take advantage of that. And so, yeah, I'm hoping I will. Yep. 
Yeah. I would no sense I would in reinventing it. Would. Wheel. I mean, yeah. unless there's some, you know, strange reason he doesn't want to. Well, it sounds very interesting. So you get a lot of traction with uh, closure. You see a, a adoption going, growing. It's or? a it's a brand new thing. Um, we have a couple of minor little dabbly kind of things going in it, on it right now. Um, uh, Stuart Halloway, who wrote the closure book, who's here doing some talks. Mm-hmm. Um, his company Relevance, I think, thirty percent of their consulting work is now in closure. So wow, That's there's neat. you know there's some a little bit of uptick. It's a it's a very very interesting. Very interesting thing. And is this freely available? Can I go yeah, download it somewhere? Absolutely. So where'd you put it? Cloplex, SourceForge? Uh, well, Clojure itself yeah. is on. It's probably Clojure.org. If you do a search for Clojure, it's easy, easy to find. Okay. And then mm-hmm. the testing thing that we wrote, uh, Circumspec, is on uh, GitHub. It's on Stuart Holloway's GitHub account. <laughs> right. So I have to go Very to cool. him for it. Yeah. Right. And and Circumspec is a basically the, a, a testing framework for for closure. Anything special you need to do around that? No, it's just, it's just a BDD framework. It's it's inspired by RSpec and uh, my colleague Ola Benny, who's also here, has written a language called Ioki, which is a very experimental language. And one of the things he did in Ioki, which is also basically a dialect of Lisp, so it's very close in lineage to closure in terms of syntax. He wrote something called iSpec, which is a behavior-driven testing framework for Ioki. Mm-hmm. What we did was basically port iSpec over to closure. Oh, okay. Which was Makes not, sense. not hard. Yep. And, and more porting concepts than actual syntax or anything like that. But it looks a lot like, so the, the family of tools that it look most closely resembles are things like RSpec in the Ruby world or EasyB in Groovy or JBehave in Java or some, some behavior-driven development tools like that. Sure. Cool. So, any idea what's coming next on that uh, on closure? Is there is there a big well, piece it, that needs to be built yet? No, it's it's pretty much cooked. It's one It's one something now. I think one mm-hmm. is in beta right now. Uh, because it's written on top of the JVM the CLR, it, it can call anything. Right. That, all the existing libraries that are already out there. So mm-hmm. there's a gradual process of wrapping uh, existing libraries to make them seem more functional and closure like. Because there's certainly an idiomatic closure style. Right, uh, but the nice thing is you can still call all the existing stuff as much as you want, and right. then gradually port the stuff over that you want to be more semantically like Clojure. There's an architectural element here, and actually, one of the sessions that was going on at OrDev was uh, doing functional programming in in JavaScript, and really this idea that functional programming is not just a language, no, but also a methodology that oh, yeah. I think substantially impacts the way you design apps. Well, you, 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 it forces you to think are. about shared state. Right. And we just don't do that in object-oriented languages because it's just right. everywhere. It's just everywhere. It's exactly like uh, the, the analogy I have for this is before objects came along, you basically passed around data structures in, in structured and modular languages. Right. And right. it was just highly coupled all over the place. And we just kind of lived with it because oh, that's just the way programs work. Yeah. And then, you know, real encapsulation comes along. And then you look back at the old days and go, man, that was crazy. I can't yeah. believe we used to do that. And, and five years, we're going to look back on this era and go, all yeah. oh, that shared state floating around in all these objects everywhere. God, yeah. I can't <laughs> believe we used to do that. That's just yeah. craziness. So, and then I have know, those days now. Well, exactly. I mean, what have we done? Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, you know, it's it's just part of the ongoing progression of thinking about writing software, which is, you know, surprisingly difficult thing to do. Yeah. Mean, that's really computer languages are how you think about software. And uh, so the, there's an interesting kind of architectural aspect to this. There's a, a famous essay by Jack Reeves uh, from 1992 from the C++ Journal, wow. which you can get online still. And it's called What is Software Design? 
And he does an interesting job of comparing traditional engineering to software engineering with the goal of being removing the air quotes around engineer and yes. software engineer. Mm-hmm. And he makes some interesting observations, including the fact that the final goal, the final deliverable of any kind of engineering effort is some type of documentation. Right. If you're a civil engineer, what, do you, what is your deliverable? Yeah, plans. It's the plans to yeah. of how to build a bridge right. or a building or something. And then you hand it to a manufacturing team, and they can build it without any further input from you. Right. So if, if that analogy holds for software, what is the design document for software? Well, sure, it's the UML diagrams and sequence diagrams and napkin pictures and whiteboard drawings and all that stuff, but not, that's not sufficient to create the software. The design document in software is the complete source code. Basically, is, you have to build the app. Well, that is the that's the the, the schematic in the engineering terms is right. the complete source code, and the manufacturing team is the compiler. Yes. Mm. So that's one of the big differences between software engineering and regular engineering is that for us, we can instantly uh, build whatever we, uh, we've designed mm. right. and poke at it and try it out, mm. and if it doesn't work, throw it away, make a small change, and instantly build it again. Not that easy to do that with bridges. No, it's just going to well, say. Exactly. You know, we can't really refactor the golden Let's refactor bridge. that bridge. But yeah. can you imagine what bridges would look like yeah. if civil engineers were able to do that? Yeah, we're able to experiment at that rate. Exactly. The, mm. We'd have the most elaborate bridges imaginable. I mean, it, mm. it would be so much more than what we have now. Sure. And, and that's one of the reasons why software engineering is a much, much, much harder, an order of magnitude harder engineering problem than all the other engineering disciplines out there. Because we have so much freedom that it's paralyzing. Yeah. And so the way that we express that freedom is through programming languages. That's how you express design. Mm-hmm. And uh, notation matters a lot. There's a, a famous story that comes from the book uh, Drunkard's Walk, How Randomness Rules Our Lives. There's this famous Italian guy, uh, Cardano is his last name. I don't remember his first name. Giuseppe Cardano, I think. And he invented, he was kind of this interesting character. He was, he kind of acted like a doctor for a while until he got busted and went to jail. This is in 15th century Italy. Wow. So he was, you know, he acted the... He's Forrest Gump of his yeah, day. Well, yeah, well, more like Zelig. He was, you know, <laughs> popping up in places and, you know, he's claiming to be a dentist here and a doctor here and a lawyer here and he'd get busted and have to move to another town. But the, his main hobby was gambling. And he was a pretty good gambler. And in fact, he wrote a book about gambling that he wrote in the 15, like 1550s, but wasn't published until the 1600s after he died. Because he bet everybody that he could be a doctor and a lawyer and a dentist. <laughs> it wasn't that. He actually figured out a whole bunch of this gambling stuff and most importantly, came up with a good statistical mathematical notation for it hmm. that we're still using today. And so really thinking about statistics, was kind of put on hold until somebody came up with a good way of capturing that. Mm. And as soon as you did that, then you could think about it much more effectively. It's exactly the same thing with calculus. The calculus, when they, it was kind of independently developed by Newton and Leibniz, yeah. right. the main things that they were fighting over is the notation. What would the notation look like to express this mathematically? That's computer languages to us. Yes. Right. So I think that's why we're seeing a computer language renaissance right now mm-hmm. is because we've realized there is no one true language to rule them all, right. that you can't take one language, Although Java or C Sharp Ruby. or whatever, yeah. or I'm sorry. whatever. I had to say that. Ruby too. <laughs> uh, you can't take one language and solve every single problem with it. Yeah. Right. And so uh, we're, what we're starting to see is, hey, it's, you know, it's actually better to have a, an application that has three languages in it 
it mm-hmm. that each one is really well suited to the problem they're trying to yeah. solve rather than trying to create frameworks to hammer these things into existing languages. So what's the next thing on your radar? What do you want to tackle next? Well, certainly I'm playing with Clojure a lot. Yeah. Uh, that's a big thing. This is a new new. That's the new shiny yeah. thing that I'm yeah. kind of playing with right yeah. now. This is this occupies a spot in my heart that Ruby did five years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Before I started doing a lot of Rails projects and that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, most of the work that I do at ThoughtWorks is uh, around kind of architecture and design, and I'm yeah. I'm really interested in pushing the envelope on uh, evolutionary architecture and emergent design on enterprise scales. Um, which is one of the, the interesting challenges we get at ThoughtWorks is we get hired by enterprises to build enterprise-scale applications, right. but we do that as hardcore agile as we can. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of interesting challenges around evolutionary architecture and emergent design applied at that scale. Yeah, so to the enterprise standard. That's a very, it's almost, you know, you're, you're going up against the worst-case scenario. It's like the brick wall of standards yeah. to try and, and do, be emergent that way. Right, exactly. So there, there's a lot of interesting challenges there uh, that I'm, that's what I'm doing kind of as my day job stuff that I think is, is pretty interesting and will continue to be interesting for uh, at least the near term uh, awesome. and probably long term too. Neil, thanks a lot for talking to us. It's yep. been a pleasure. Glad to do it. All right, thank you. Yep. Thanks. Thanks. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you the new TFS Work Item Manager and TFS Project Dashboard. So if you're spending a lot of time on organizing the cluttered pile of work items in TFS, get ready for a fresh and intuitive experience. The guys at Telerik just launched the TFS Work Item Manager and Project Dashboard, a couple of free tools designed to make working with Team Foundation Server faster and easier. Unlike the standard TFS Explorer, the Work Item Manager lets you take advantage of powerful capabilities like filtering, as-you-type search, grouping and aggregation, and iteration scheduling. You can even see all the work items in a Scrum dashboard view, as if watching the whiteboard in your own room. Project Dashboard is a unique tool for visualizing TFS data. Useful for both developers and project managers, it helps you keep track of the latest TFS project activity like current iteration progress, build history, recent check-ins, assigned tasks and bug history, and to understand the health of the project as a whole. The TFS tools are brought to you by Telerik and Imaginet, the experts in application lifecycle management. Built with RAD controls for WPF, they're both amazingly flexible and responsive. Go to Telerik.com and download the TFS tools for free. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Hey, Richard. Hi, Carl. Or Dev, 2009. Last day. On the stage. And we're here with Carrie Hamill. Hi, Carrie. Hi. From Microsoft Research. Yes. Working on parallelism. Yes. Are you in the UK uh, MSR, or do you come all the way from Redmond? All the way from Redmond. Oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah. Thank you. It's a wonderful conference, and it's a lot of fun to have an opportunity to come so far from Redmond. Yeah, no kidding. Does your research focus on all of the parallelism things in... .NET and beyond, or what's the scope of your research? So the project I'm spending most of my time on right now is a high-level data parallel library that it's an array processing model and can target GPU or CPU or other processors on the fly. Wow, cool. So uh, fairly targeted. The research agenda around it was originally validating that the general use of graphics processors for computation was was a good thing to do. And also that it's possible to make a very high-level intuitive model for parallelism that is, you know, very fast to get up and running and still gives you good performance speed up. 
And if I remember correctly, uh, GPUs are especially good at the kind of work that parallelism lends itself to, sort of cell processors. They've got lots of working units. Yeah, so GPUs are massively parallel by virtue of the, the design. Like originally they were designed for rendering and they can render all the pixels on the screen in parallel pretty much. Yeah. And right. so you can adapt that out too. It, it's good for... Um, some parallel workloads, especially anything that is data parallel where you can separate the computations of the individual elements. So image processing, medical imaging. Um, video rendering, perhaps? Video, yeah, and encoding and decoding can be accelerated. Yeah. And um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of scientific computing, atmospheric modeling and environmental modeling mm -hmm. and particle simulations and a you know, broad set of places you can use as it. As soon as you're starting to talk about stuff flowing over other things, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. natural cell processing models. My yeah, big question exactly. is, is it easier to use than your standard threading model? Because it obviously doesn't buy you much if you can't use it yes. very easily. Yes. So the cool thing about data parallel is that you don't have to deal with threading at all. The principle is that um, you're doing the same computation on all of the elements, and the best case is there's no interdependency. And so Therefore, that's the name of it, data parallel? Data parallel is, is the, the processing model. And so no interdependencies means no locks, no, yeah. no um, synchronization issues. Just go do that. Just go do that. Let me know when you're done. Exactly. And so that's one of the principles is for the class of problems that can be solved this way makes it much, much easier. Like we've had people who are not professional programmers spend two weeks and get like a 30x speed up on, on wow. their core algorithm. That's the kind of, of thing that we're trying to enable. I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> so is, are you working in .NET? So our V1 of Accelerator was all .NET, and wow. V2 of Accelerator, what we've done is a C++ library with .NET APIs on top of it so that it can be used from from. Great. So, I mean, on one side, there's how you coded to make this thing work, and the other side is how someone is going to utilize it. Yeah. And so, always utilization from .NET, but you've gone a little lower now to take advantage of the GPUs better? We went lower levels so that people who couldn't use .NET for some reason could use Accelerator. Yeah. There's, um, in HPC, there's people who have a lot of legacy code and they're not ready to move over. However, right. it's, it's amazing how many people we find in research institutions who are using .NET because it is such good tooling support and such an easy environment to get up and running with. I remember early on when we started start talking to Microsoft Research, and that's a number of years ago, and there wasn't a lot of .NET then. They did more low-level coding, and in some mm -hmm. ways it isolated the work that MSR did. And then it was like they discovered .NET, and it's a great place to work, but it also meant we could immediately take the things they were building, even though right. they were research. There's so many developers out there that can just get their hands on it right get away. Get in there and get going on it. I think back to, well, F Sharp is yeah. a great example of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it is... It, it feels to me like MSR is far more visible to development community in the past couple of years than it's ever been before. That I, I hope we had something to do with it. I hope so too. But yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of projects inside of Microsoft now around parallelism that are product. I mean, yeah. TPM, uh, TPM P -Link. and, and P-Link and, and so forth. Hmm? This is a different thing, but is it something that a regular .NET developer could lay their hands on? Uh, we're very close to the point of having an alpha build of Accelerator V2. So a, a little bit on the, the history. Accelerator V1's been around for a couple of years now. And um, we got some good feedback on it. And the feedback told us that we needed to do some stuff in order for it to be more broadly applicable. Sure. So Accelerator V2 is an incubation that's about... Um, adding the things that people needed for it to be applicable, for, for it to be usable in a broader set of circumstances. And in two weeks, we're going to have an alpha build for people who really like living on the bleeding edge. Now, you said, this is a question I wanted to ask you about 10 minutes ago, but you said that arrays, uh, array processing, so basically if it's in an array, 
That's your input mm-hmm. format of any kind? Yeah, well, so we created a, we're a class library, no language changes needed, and we've created a set of data types called parallel arrays. Okay. So float parallel array, integer parallel array, okay. and so on. You take your input data, however you have it, and you put it into one of our parallel array objects, and then you, you process on wow. that. Wow. And then somehow you have to pass this at algorithm as well to say, go apply this to all of these elements in the array. But if there's too much data to fit in memory, can you so, do it off a disk as well? Yeah, that, that gets a little more tough. So we have um, targets that are written for individual processors. We have a multi-core CPU target. We have mm-hmm. a GPU target. And mm-hmm. um, the GPU target does the best it can in low memory situations. But mm-hmm. GPUs inherently don't have the same kind of memory management that CPUs have. Sure. So you can run into situations where if you're bigger than all of video memory, then, yeah. then you're going to have trouble. On the CPU side, we can take advantage of the operating system's memory virtualization services. Okay. So, uh, On the other hand... There are GPU video cards running out there these days with a gigabyte of memory in them. Yes. GPUs, and they're only a few hundred dollars. Yes, yeah. So that's one of the exciting things. GPGPU has gotten to the point where you can have a teraflop machine on your desktop for under two or three thousand dollars. Yeah. With the CPUs, like if you get a quad core CPU and a top of the line GPU, you have what was a supercomputer ten years ago. Yeah, you, think you might even be able to get one as powerful as Richard's. <laughs> <laughs> there, uh, some the companies like Nvidia and ATI now are all, which are the big video card manufacturers, are also starting to make physics cards. So still the GPU, but mm-hmm. getting getting rid of all of the actual sort of video stuff. The on physics that. engine. Are mm-hmm. you are you playing with those as well? Is that fit into your to your space? So it does. The way that they're enabling the physics computation is actually the same compute path that we use for GPGPU. Okay. So um, the physics simulation all the same silicon required for, for what we need in Accelerator and for GPGPU in general. the point general. being, if I actually wanted to build one of these supercomputers, right. I shouldn't buy a big pile of video cards. I should really buy these physics cards. Yeah, well, they, they have it integrated into the same video card. It's a separate, com- it's a separate pipeline that you can use you know, kind of at the same time oh, okay. as the rendering pipeline. What about for using multiple machines with multiple GPUs? Now, that starts to get interesting because multiple, you, you can do it. There are people who are actually trying it. Um, Oak Ridge National Laboratory recently announced that they're building a CPU-GPU compute cluster. Huh. And um, the hard challenges there are management of the work that's being sent out to the individual machines sure. and then scheduled on the GPUs. And if and I recall yeah. correctly, Oak Ridge's business is simulating nuclear explosions. This one is for weather modeling. Okay. No, no, nuclear explosions, Richard. Uh, okay. Yeah, okay. Um, do, where was the, what was the peer-to-peer uh, library that we uh, talked to? I think it was a Microsoft Research Project. It wasn't a Microsoft Research Project. It was something else, and I don't remember the name of it. Yeah. I'm going to try to rack my maids as That's, we sat down. The first thing that came to mind yeah. is that there, there are other .NET tools that allow you to do these sort of grid computing things might be uh, need to hook up with some of those, or you may be able to even do that yourself. But in this array model, if you've got a big enough array, you could just chop it up into chunks, dole it out to a bunch of machines, and then they load the cells up. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's exactly it. So right now, the targets that we're building for Accelerator at the moment are focused on single machine on the node Mm. kind of computation, but um, I think some of the interesting research that still could be done is expanding that out to a target that runs on a cluster. So the target then chops up the work and sends it out, kind of a MapReduce kind of algorithm, or... um, you know, a target that helps the users select from the available processors on yeah. their system. Is this work better for the CPU? Is this work better for the GPU? I want a system powerful enough that can render a Pixar movie in real time. That, that's my dad. I, I think that's a wonderful goal. You know, there's actually compute clouds out there that are being built to do that type of rendering in real time yeah. on, on a cloud and stream it down to you as a video. That's so cool. There's a company called Otoy 
that demoed um, their, 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 they promised crisis on a phone. So first-person wow. shooter game on a phone, all, all you need is a web browser. They're doing all of the heavy work on their servers wow. and then streaming it down to your phone as a video. But this is wow. big. The interesting problem is we can harness all this computing power, but actually getting the data to the machine and getting the results back out into a useful form mm -hmm. takes longer than the computation. You're like, absolutely right. So the challenges of GPGPU and where, you know, if you're thinking about using it in your application, you need to be aware that a powerful video card has separate memory. Right. from yep. the CPU and that the pipe between the CPU and the GPU is pretty slow, relatively speaking. Right. So we find that um, people typically need to have on the order of at least a couple thousand elements in the data that they're processing to make it even worthwhile. And the more data you have, the more beneficial it is because the transfer time is actually the, the most expensive piece of the process. Right. In the, and out. In and, and out. So you're talking PCIe bus at 866 megahertz. Yeah. Like, Da -da 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 -da. It's about a megabyte a second. That's not that fast. That's absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. Can can you talk about any particular customers that are interested in uh, this tool and, and what they're going to use it for? So we've talked to um, a variety of people who have used Accelerator V1 and have given us feedback. And um, you know, coming from research, a lot of my contacts are in academia. Yeah. I've talked to people who are doing um, particle simulations, people who are doing n-body um, simulations of of um, biological systems, people mm. who are simulating protein folding, a really fascinating... But no, like major pharmaceutical companies or NASA or any anyone that we can... Not yet. We're still a little early on, on our development cycle, I think, to, mm. to, to be at that point. So where we are is we're putting out an alpha build of Accelerator V2 for like early pilot users yeah. to look at in a couple of weeks. And then we hope to take the feedback that we learn from that to roll back into Accelerator. And, you know, hopefully at some point it will be useful as a product. Yeah. You know, right now we, we are still research incubation. That's so cool. We, of course, the problem here is that this is still a very particular class of problems. I mean, most yeah. CRUD apps don't have a lot of particle simulating in them. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, not everything is data parallel. Right. Um, some stuff you, you actually need to use the task parallel model, which is different tasks being done at the same time on mm -hmm. possibly the same data or possibly different data. Right. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the nice thing about a data parallel model is that for the class of problems that it fits, it's a very easy model to implement Sounds and get right. Like but it's not the right model for everything. And so that's where you see things like task parallel library, parallel primitives library yeah. sure. that are going into VS 2010. I, right. I, I throw on my SQL Server hat and start thinking in terms of massive transformation of data, especially when you start talking about stuff like OLAP cubes and so on, where there's, there's operations we want to apply to a tremendous amount of data. Mm -hmm. And if the latency was bearable, actually piping all that data out of the database, getting it loaded into the GPU, doing the transformation and piping it all back, mm -hmm. that might be advantageous. Mm -hmm. But the, yeah, the big question is the latency. Yeah, it's You'd amazing how this is a latency and... problem, not actually a processing problem, even yeah. though we started with a processing problem. But, and if it's something where you can pipeline your data in so that if you, know, if you need real-time real -time processing, that it's really hard to cope with the latency that right. you, you have with a GPU or with cluster computing where you're sending stuff out to a different machine over some kind of an interconnect. Mm -hmm. If you can tolerate some latency from start to end, you can start to try to pipeline your data. Um, a lot of systems like that are high-end now have two GPUs on them, for example. Right. You can send some work here, send some work here. Um, heterogeneous processing, you want to use all the compute resources. Can you run this on the CPU, run that on the GPU? You know, can you bring these models together and create something that gives you enough of an advantage performance-wise to work with all of the programming models that you have to work with? I can imagine it. the Human Genome Project would be pretty interested in this. 
I mean, that's really sorting through tons and tons of data in different combinations and trying to, you know, do mm-hmm. an analysis on it. Yeah, I think uh, genetic processing in general, highly data parallel. Um, yeah. I think they work well in a grid model. There's been a lot of grid computing, like folding at home yeah. has been an example of, of uh, biology. Study at home was the first one. Yeah, way first back First one then. I had, yeah. Have they found intelligent life yet? Here or elsewhere? Yeah, it depends on which way they aim the antenna. That's yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I'm just looking forward. It would be exciting to me if we could get this, because this really all falls into high-performance computing as well, mm-hmm. get this high-performance computing more commonplace. Like when a team like the SQL Server team could adopt that technology and say, hey, if you want to juice up your mm. your your uh, your SQL Server for these tasks, add this kind of equipment. That, to That's me, nice. we really will have arrived. Mm-hmm. I just don't know we're there yet. Yeah, I think that there's a couple of places where we're pushing technology forward right now mm-hmm. to make it more more of a, a solution that you can just easily adopt into any program. And some of that is on the hardware front. So I think over, you know, if I put on my, my crystal ball hat in 10 years, I hope that the memory coherence problem won't be an issue anymore, that there will be some solution allowing um, different processors to utilize the same memory with fast connection. Mm. Um and that we'll get faster interconnects between machines. I know there's some research going on um, at various places into optical interconnects between machines right, and right. orders yeah. of magnitude faster than what you can do today. Right. So I think that um, advances on the hardware front will help us, and then advances on the programming model front. Right now, if you want to do heterogeneous parallelism, you do have to deal with, this is how I program this hardware, that's how I program that hardware, and the learning curve is, is therefore high. Mm. And as, as we push the hardware forward, I think we're going to push the programming models forward too. I wonder if the GPU will become less relevant as we get more massively more multi-core uh, CPUs. That, that when 16 cores on the desktop are common and servers are running 256 cores, why would you bother with GPUs? The, the reason why GPUs are attractive um, compared to the types of cores that are in CPUs is because they're, they're very lightweight and they're very fast at certain types of processors. Right. So CPU cores uh, have a lot of logic around them, around um, prefetching and caching and out-of-order execution of instructions, and that's how they achieve hyper-threading so that you can have two logical threads running on one piece of hardware. Mm-hmm. And that works well for some kinds of parallelism, whereas the, the massively fast pipeline of um, the GPU with, you know, literally thousands of threads running in parallel, different operations they run, but they run those operations very quickly. Very limited instruction set, too. Yeah, pretty expressive, but a much smaller instruction set. And GPU access to GPU memory is 10 times faster than CPU access to CPU memory. That's a big part of the the speed up as well. That's... You should say that again because that's really, really important. Yeah, yeah. ten it's, times faster. It's true, actually. That is the key to a lot of GPU performance. There's no bus, right? Is that it? It's all there, just, there is a bus, but it's internal it's to internal. and yeah. a very, very short connection, very local, and yeah. um, the it's just a lot faster than you can do with than with a system memory architecture right, right now. I think most folks just aren't aware of how much uh, sophistication there is in video cards these days. And yeah, I remember reading articles mm-hmm. a few years ago that said actually. Your average video card design now is more complex than what's in your average CPU. That, they, that these GPUs are very fast and very complicated, the, and they get hot quick. They mm-hmm. get hot quick, yeah. So one of the one of the challenges that's driving people into parallelism is the fact that power usage, heat dissipation, the limits of cooling, mm-hmm. yeah. the limits of how much power you want to use in your data center. All of those things are are pushing against right. just making processors faster. Yeah, right. Wow. This, so we can get this at uh, Microsoft Research? Uh, um, in about two weeks, we'll have the alpha build, and I'd be happy to... Uh, to Let's give a real date. 
that's to be two weeks from today, which it, is 11, November's... 11-16 is the date. So it might be a little under two weeks now. Today's the 6th, so... 11-16 is the date. We're going to be at Supercomputing in Portland, and we're going to be on the show floor demoing and... I suspect when this is published, it'll be out, so folks will be able to come and get it. Oh, excellent. I imagine that uh, we'll get some good feedback. Yeah, and we'll put some links on the website and uh, get some people downloading. Yeah, that would be wonderful. We're really looking for people to give it a try and tell us, you know, what's working, tell us how you're using it. You know, one of the the things that we do with these research incubations is get real-world usage data. Like, I've told you some examples of what I've seen people try to do, but I think that there's a huge number of applications out there that I haven't seen yet. And so finding out what people are trying to do and what successes they're having finding out what, um, you know, one of the cool things about Accelerator is you can take the same code, uh, our high-level code, you can run it on the GPU or on the CPU. Yeah. So tell us what's working. Right. You know, is, yeah. is the GPU giving you a speed-up for this? Or are you finding that doing multi-core CPU is and not dealing with data transfer is giving you a better result in your case? And yeah. it sounds like it couldn't be easier to use. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It's good to meet you. Okay, you too. Thank you. Thank you. And here we are again, Richard. Hey, sir. It's Ordev. It's Friday. It's the 6th of November. It's cold out. Yeah, it's not as cold today as it was yesterday. It was still snowing a little yesterday. In Sweden. Yeah, I'm, I'm still glad to be here. It's a great town. It's Eric Stoltz, if I remember correctly. Eric Stoltz. Yeah, nice to meet you. Love your movies with John Hughes. <laughs> yeah, that's so, not me. I can't take credit. <laughs> My, and you're with Microsoft Research. That's right. I'm and a developer there. You're a developer. Yeah. So not just a research, but you know, building the code. What sort of projects you worked on? That's right. Well, I work in the interactive visual media group, and of course, we specialize in visual stuff. So it's kind of hard to describe on radio. Yeah. But um, uh, we do all kinds of stuff at the intersection between computer graphics and computer vision. So we have experts in in vision technology, like recognizing features in images and pulling out camera poses and detecting where things are in the world, so and then also rendering stuff. Like, so does Project Natal mean anything to you these days? Uh, I wish I could say something about that, <laughs> but I can't. <laughs> yeah, everyone's holding on pretty tightly to that one. It's pretty, yeah. pretty freaking awesome, though. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and, you know, our team has done research into augmented reality and, and, you know, detecting human motion and motion of objects and stuff like that. But I don't know if our stuff actually made it into Natal because they're so super secret about that yeah, project. Yeah, they are. Yeah. <laughs> there has been a lot of interesting technology out of MSR sort of into the world uh, in this particular space. I remember seeing uh, the the tool that composites all the images together of, uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, Notre Dame Cathedral. And did, that's right. I can't yeah. remember what that's called. Is that Photosynth? Yeah, yeah. That, that's a project that originated in our group before my time. I've only been in there two years. Oh, okay. Uh, before that, I was working five years on a product team. So I've, I've been on both sides of the fence in terms of project, products and, and research. Um, but yeah, Photosynth came out of the Interactive Visual Media Group in collaboration with University of Washington. And uh, it you know, became, a, became a success when it went through Live Labs and now it's a product team. And you worked on Deep Zoom as well. Well, I've used DeepZoom in a bunch of projects. Um, I like using Silverlight and WPF. I'm, I'm totally sold on .NET technologies. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I've used DeepZoom for uh, panorama viewing. We have two panorama viewers coming out of our team. One, one is a DirectX plug-in to the browser, and it gives you true 3D surround panorama viewing, and it's pretty awesome. And uh, I helped port that to, to Silverlight to give people... Um, 
somewhat of the same experience for viewing panoramas, but in the browser without having to install a DirectX plugin. So it runs on Mac as well. Now, when you say panorama view, I'm thinking, do I have to have monitors all around my head? No, actually, um, we're we're basically simulating the projection that you would get, um, you know, either a spherical yeah. or cylindrical projection. Do you have to have in special 3D. cameras to take those pictures, or do you just no, have to set them up in the right way? Actually. Um, that brings up another piece of software we have, which is Microsoft Image Composite Editor, or ICE, which mm -hmm. is for compositing images together. So if you take snapshots just by, you know, taking them one at a time, spinning around, yeah. you can stitch them together into Panorama. There, there are a bunch of, in, bunch of programs out there that you can use for, right. for stitching panoramas, and we happen to believe we have one of the best ones out yeah. there. Um, the problem, of course, is that when you have, uh, if you don't take enough pictures, you know, then you're, you, it stretches at the edges, and then... Yeah, you the, get a bunch of distortion. You get a or, bunch of distortion, yeah. And, and often a lot of the panorama viewers that are out there, once you have a stitched image and you're looking at it, you're just looking at a flat image. Yeah. So you don't really get that feeling of being there. And so... So you what distort we do, on the fly. In other yeah, words. in HD view, we distort it. So when you're looking at the full image, it looks flat. But as you start to zoom into it, we curve it around mm. your... It, it feels like you're embedded, you know, in the 3D space looking wow. around at the image. And we can do that with a cylindrical projection, a spherical projection, or even a fisheye lens. So nice. it's like you're, you're looking at the world with a camera, and you can That's change cool. all those. And those deep zoom effects kick mm -hmm. in when you start zooming in on a particular item, and you've got close-range photos of that item, and sort of the detail pops out as you get closer to yeah. it. Yeah, deep zoom is, is a great technology. It's, it's basically streaming uh, yeah. tiles from your image down over the Internet, you know, just the tiles that you need. So as you zoom in, you... You only have to download the tiles that are necessary. So you get a fast experience, a smooth experience, but really high-resolution imagery. Yeah. In fact, we, we pioneered gigapixel imagery in our team. So we were one of the few uh, people at first creating images that were larger than a gigapixel by stitching the images and then allowing you to the, view them with this HD view as our panorama viewer. Do you do anything with um, live services, the mapping? Because I, I guess Microsoft has these huge satellites with really insane cameras on them. Yeah, um, I, I guess we don't really own the cameras, but, no, no, we, no, but we, we do get the imagery. Images and we do get the imagery, and, and uh, one, one of the teams that my, my group works with a lot is the Bing Maps team to help them process yeah. that imagery, help color correct it, stitch it together, get it out there on the, on the world map. Just do me a favor. If you see anything around State Street in New London, Connecticut, just... Oh, yeah. Because I was, I was out. out on the patio in my okay, shorts yeah, one we'll, day. We'll <laughs> cover that up. <laughs> just sure Nobody needs to see that. <laughs> yeah. Actually, yeah. we have technology in there that we've helped with a little bit on uh, uh, blurring out people and on license plates oh, just to wow. protect people's privacy. Wow. So you have code that goes and looks for license plates and blurs it out? Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, it's spooky, it's, really. It's, well, it's a real privacy issue. You sure. Know? No, we absolutely. Wanna, we want to respect Because, you know, that. when you get resolution so fine, you don't want to see somebody's nose hairs, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, and I remember we, we, we saw pictures of this camera. It was for an airplane, not a satellite. Yeah, yeah. It was aerial. It was well, that's camera. the great thing about all of these map systems is, well, it feels like a satellite because you can pull out and see yeah. the whole Earth. Yeah, they're it's mostly aerial photography, and once you zoom into any distance, that's right. You're they're blending between satellite photos and, and then you got and guys aerial driving photos. around in cars that are taking pictures at the street level, and you could just like drive down the street. Yep. I'm sorry, that's just nasty. Well, there's lots of cool stuff there. What's your favorite uh, thing that you've seen, you know, in that visual space? Um, or worked with. Well, I, I've got to say I love the panorama stuff. I'm working both on the, the stitching side 
mm. where we're, we're helping people construct panoramas from all the photos that they've taken. Mm. And uh, the viewing side, creating new ways for people to view their panoramas on the web. I wanted to, to mention one thing I've been working on lately because I, sure. I find it really fascinating. Um, nowadays, you, you can buy for $300 or so a device called Gigapan, or you can modify a telescope mount to hold your camera and then robotically shoot a, a panorama. So, sure. Wow. You know, it, it's Wait, rotating we, horizontally and vertically, taking lots of pictures. We did Gigapan on Mondays. If That's right. Oh, yeah? Right? Okay. Yep. So yeah, it, and it's just a, you, you mount it on a tripod, mount the camera on that, and they make one for big SLRs and one for smaller cameras. Yep. And then you sort of, you could program in the rules and it just takes all the shots for you. Yeah, once it knows the field of view of your camera, it can just spin the camera around and take a shot at each position do it horizontally and vertically and, and make a big grid of images. But The number of positions, too, which is, I think, really important because, you know, you don't yeah. want to just take four. You know, yeah, you yeah. No, the more, more that you have, the better your resolution. You max out your zoom, right? And yeah. so you, you're really zoomed way in there and it takes lots of pictures. You can get hundreds or thousands. Yeah. And then the real problem is how do you stitch together a hundred yeah. or a thousand images? And so we've been making some progress on on doing that. Like I said, we've worked with gigapixel images before and now we're adding features to our image composite editor to make it easily available to to everybody in the public who wants to download it. So, so and when you're done, do you get something that can stream down with Silverlight? Yeah, exactly. We like to output it to HD view format or to deep zoom format, and both of those are tiled images that, that can stream down over the web. So I'm imagining I want a, you know, a real estate agent taking yeah, an image of a, exactly. of a kitchen, mm -hmm. take something like a gigapan, puts a good camera on it with a decent zoom on it. So they're literally, the field of view is now quite narrow. Yeah. So they're yeah. going to take, and it's this hemispherical shot, right? It's you could take a full sphere almost with almost a, with a full a sphere pan. of shots. I guess I guess a high powered zoom would be overkill if you're inside because yeah. those would be pretty close. I guess, yeah. you, but you, you you could get a really high res look at at the inside of a room or. or yeah, an the question scene. is, do you really want to see the fingerprints on the door handles? Yeah. Well, I think the, a, a really good question is, you know, once I have a set of, let's say it's in a house, how can you map that out in space so that you can actually use your controls to? you know, walk from room to room and go from... Well, for that, if, if you're moving around, then Photosynth is the tool for the job and not necessarily yeah. just a single panorama, right? right. Photosynth is, is really designed, again, for taking a collection of photos, but this time from different places and not necessarily with the same zoom. So so Photosynth is, is based on the same kind of code as panoramic stitching. It's extracting features mm -hmm. from images, mm -hmm. matching them up, finding how things are oriented, related to one another... On, and placing all those photos in a 3D world. And whereas yeah. a panorama, all the photos are at a certain distance away from you on a sphere or a cylinder. Can you combine the two? The photos in, Well, that's one thing we're researching right now is how to stitch together panoramas and throw them into Photosynth. And yeah. so you could stop in a room, look around at a panorama, Move and then walk on to the next yeah. room and, and continue along the way, always traversing now you're you know, some path of photos. a real virtual world versus, you know, second life. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's always improvements that we're helping the Photosynth team Sort of make. moving from sphere to sphere. Yeah. yeah. You create, but you always, find these always connections. Walk up the staircase, go into the bathroom, look yeah. around, you know. Yeah. And, I mean, Photosynth does a good job of that already today. They've, yeah. they've added uh, an overhead view recently that shows you kind of the point cloud of all the features that match between photos from above. And it looks just like a floor plan of your house or, yeah. you know, a The thing plan I don't like about building. Photosynth, though, and maybe you can tell me if this has changed, but, you know, the sort of the pictures come and go. And so mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to see like a big a big picture. Sometimes. Yeah, they're always focusing on on the one picture on that you're, you're looking, looking at, at yeah. now, and the others are kind of fading and fading just, out to the side. Right. And, th and so one of the things we're working on now is how to how to view panoramas in that situation. So the surrounding right. area they would just be fill in and too. stay in. Maybe. Yeah, it would stay there. 
How big of a difference does a, something like a GigaPan make to that whole process? Well, it gives you much higher resolution, right? right? If you can if you can shoot that many photos robotically, it's really hard to to shoot a, a good consistent panorama by yeah. hand. Moving yeah. it two degrees at a turn by hand would be pretty well, tough. Also, yeah, you're and also, yourself, right? yeah. so you got to like a, you're not. Yeah, you know, yeah, you got to keep the center of the optics of the camera fixed. Right. And it's pretty easy to spin around horizontally, but it's pretty hard to remember to to go oh, yeah. up and down as well. Right. So getting that robotic head gives you gives yeah. you a lot of powerful capability. Very cool, Eric. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is it something we're going to see more on the tourism side of things? I've actually, uh, no it was uh, Tim Sneath actually posted one of those a little while ago where he walked into a square in some city. I can't remember where it was, but it, it did, did a pan and then pumped it through that tool to create the, the How synth about games? It. How about taking an environment and then overlaying graphics on top of that? Yeah, I mean, that that's um, an up-and-coming field, augmented reality. Claire's nodding. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. Bring it um, on. You know, and, and it's a... a a great field for for mobile phones as well, right? Yeah. You see, virtu- uh, augmented reality kind of the hot topic today, but but so far they haven't been really using vision techniques. So I, I think mm. you're going to be seeing a lot more of that in the future, where the camera on the phone is seeing something. Mm. Vision techniques are being used to recognize what's in the picture and overlay graphics that make it a more interesting. Now, if you can world. add smell, yeah, I think. oh boy, you'll have something. But I mean. Current generation. I wonder if that, no, wonder if that falls no, no, under the smell media. feature. You're not going to just, you're going to walk right past that. Yeah. Right. Thanks. Well, Eric laughed. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm thinking in terms of looking at the latest generation of, of cameras that they all, they recognize, identify faces in, right. instantly. Yeah. yeah. So you start thinking about the synthesis of the ability to recognize a face from any photo and then some of this facial recognition stuff, like, Works, it gets pretty weird. It's bad for celebrities who are trying to be incognito, yeah. you know, when the camera can recognize them through the fake mustache and but great glasses. for people with bad memories, the idea that if, True. you know, Maybe yeah, Alzheimer's tr- dream come true. You got to think there's be an iPhone app at some point where you walk up to somebody like, I know that person. You hold the camera up and it, uh, you hold the phone up and it just goes, it's so and so. Boy, I needed it's that at this son. conference. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it undermines, I'm pretty good at that generally, going to a conference and recognizing who's who. Yeah. So you're undermining my capability if you solve that problem. If you're you know bad that. with names. Yeah. But it's good uh, to be able to match names. Uh, okay, another thing that I'm always interested in is something. Uh, you know, either projection in eyeglasses. You know, they have those things with like monitors in eyeglasses. Are those real? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think they do. And a little projectors that pop out and on the edge of your glasses, so you can see things in context. Yeah. You ever ever done anything with that? With no, that? I can't say I have. Next Anybody at Microsoft project. Research Sounds working on cool. that? Yeah. 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 If they, if they, if they are, they, they haven't told me. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like you mostly work in the software area. I mean, yeah, I, I do. Yeah. 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 There are people doing really cool hardware stuff in Microsoft research as well. Even though Microsoft is a software company, we, we like yeah. to stay ahead of the curve on the hardware. How well, much of, of this technology is built in .NET or is this a really a low language language kind of project? Uh, actually, I'm, I'm working in both .NET and unmanaged C++ right now, and okay. it's an interesting mix, right? We have a, a library called Vision Tools that we use internally that has all of our computer vision algorithms and our image processing algorithms, and we've had that. We've been developing it over the years, so it's really pretty finely tuned C++, but now I'm at, you know, I've just recently converted the user interface of our image stitching tool into WPF because it's it's much faster to develop user interfaces sure. that way mm-hmm. and add new features and revise things, uh, design things a little better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm calling from the managed code into the unmanaged library, and I've had some fun learning learning how to do that. Yeah, it's, it's tough to bridge those worlds. They don't yeah. get along all that well with each other. Yeah, but it, at well, least it's manage. doable. 
Mixed uh, C++ mode is pretty cool, though. That's exactly it? what I'm doing. I've yeah. got a DLL that's mixed mode, and it, it's got C++ in there, managed classes that wrap the unmanaged classes that I need. And fortunately, it's a pretty small surface area. And and so my managed C-sharp code is able to call that mixed mode DLL and get the get the job done. Nate Gregory would be proud of him. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. And I've been a frequent guest and a good friend of ours. I also think uh, that you've seen a classic example of here's tools being built, and you're implementing applications against those tools mm -hmm. to really show what the potential of all this is. Without the, without the apps, we wouldn't do much. Yeah. yeah. Then yeah. Without the tools, the app wouldn't do much. Yep. They work together. Uh, just coming down to the end of the show, is there any shout-outs or anything else that you want to talk about? Uh, no, I guess I'd just like to thank everybody in the Interactive Visual Media Group for putting together the cool code that I got to demo here at Aurora Dev. Excellent. Thanks. Thanks, Eric. All right. Thank you, Thanks Eric. a lot. All right. Take care. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band.